Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Lance Keiko. He's a serial entrepreneur, architect, builder at F9 Productions, Inc. So Lance, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Hey, happy to be here. So Lance, I love your backdrop inside the firm. Tell me about that. Yeah. So Inside the Firm podcast is a podcast that my business partner, Alex Gore, and I started in 2017. Basically, at, at that point in our careers, we we were a couple of years into being fully licensed architects. We were kind of starting to make the transition into architect as builder because we'd built a tiny house and then two more and then eventually developer. So we wanted to put ourselves and our story out there because we believe in the idea that the more you give, the more you're going to get without sort of thinking that you're going to get anything. We thought that our sharing our story of how we started our firm from scratch in the Great Recession all the way up until right now where we're staffed up to about 15 people. We've won a couple of business awards and so had a pretty successful career so far. And just trying to help other people really peel back and literally be inside our firm on a weekly basis so they could maybe learn some lessons that we learned and without them having to go through those lessons. And then also just to help them out. So we're very much of the growth kind of mindset. And that's the whole idea behind our podcast. Yeah, I love that mindset. So, I mean, Anya, you talked about it briefly. You talked about entrepreneurship. Did entrepreneurship come natural to you? Or is that something that just sort of was a later thing? How did, how did you run into entrepreneurship? Yeah. Well, one of my favorite rappers is Kanye West. And one of my favorite lines that he has on one of his records is that uh, having money isn't everything, but not having it is. And so despite my mother not being happy with what I'm about to say is, I do think we grew up lower middle class at, at its peak, basically. So there was a couple summers. Uh, I remember one in particular where there, I don't know if you remember the aqua socks. So they were sort of these shoes that were not really shoes. They're meant for just the sort of casual wear on a beach. And we didn't have enough money that summer for me, for me to apparently get an extra pair of shoes. I remember being very embarrassed by, by that. And then also just feeling bad about money growing up in the sense of not feeling comfortable asking for things that I needed. And that stuck with me my whole life. So to kind of go back to that quote is, I never wanted my children to feel that way. And then I also realized that money equals freedom on a certain level of what you can do with your life and your time, right? The more that my wife and I like to pretend or like to, like to say that we don't, as many things as we don't have to schlep, she's half Jewish. So this is kind of where this term comes from, where if we don't, if we're not having to do sort of all the menial stuff and we can, we can afford to hire people out and they can do that, that's going to increase our productivity in not only professionally, but in life. I'm an avid and active fisherman and as much free time as I can get doing that and, and anything else like hiking, hiking with my wife or hanging out with the kids. I think that's where that comes from. So it really was a, a nurture sort of thing of where I think half of my entrepreneurship came from. When I ended up finding my, my real dad when I was uh, 33, I'm 38 now, come to find out he was a multimillionaire entrepreneur down in Manaus. In the, it's in the middle of the Amazon. It's in Brazil. 
And I was like, and I, I obviously look exactly like him, but I, to find out that my dad was the kind of entrepreneur that, that I'm trying to be and, and hopefully, hopefully am very successful, always on the go, trying to maximize your time, your profit, also trying to maximize what you can do for others through employment and, and helping build quality professionals and that sort of thing. I was like, oh, well, that's where half of it comes from, I feel like, is the nature side of it. So, you know, you hear about this nature versus nurture, and I think I kind of had the best of both worlds. So you, you talked about freedom, which is interesting. Now, not every entrepreneur has freedom or, or set themselves up for freedom. Did you go through that sort of, you know, separating yourself from the business? Because I feel like you're there, and I'm just wondering how easily that came or, or did you have a lot of help getting there? So that's a, that's such a good question because I think that's maybe right. I mean, this whole idea of freedom of like, Oh, especially as you're, when you're start your own business, maybe, maybe you don't even have a business partner. So I was kind of lucky that I had a business partner. And I think that helps with the multiplication of when you're trying to grow the firm so you can afford yourself more personal freedom with, with your time. Right. So I'm very thankful for Alex Gore, my business partner, who, who I've teamed up with since the beginning. I think that was a pretty that was a pretty big deal. For the first seven years, and I still wake up this early, but for the first seven years of our firm, I really didn't take a vacation. So we're almost 12 years deep now. There was not many much time I would take off. I was truly a workaholic. I would wake up at five and I would I would work all the way until six or seven at night. I would work a lot of a lot of weekends before like the sort of the kids came up. I was just very disciplined knowing that this is a long-term investment sort of like golf. I knew that I was, I had to play basically an 18 hole game, not just a nine hole game to eventually to be able to afford myself that sort of freedom. So the most, most recently when we did our development, it reminds me of sort of you're giving birth to just another part of your life. If you can make it through that seven year period or that really hard period of I'm dedicating myself and a large portion of my life, not most of it to this professional endeavor. The most recent example of that was when we did our development. So like I said, we, we built a tiny house for ourselves and uh, we ended up being on HGTV. Subaru saw it and they said, okay, can you build two more? We said, yes. We had enough money left over and profit that we, built, we bought a third of an acre. And then that became our first real estate development. At one point at the end, I, I ended up working 80 days in a row. Yeah, there was one day I had to take off and that's because I got sick. Because, and I, I do, I'm a type of person that does not get sick unless I work myself too much. And that's what happened. So it was 80 days in a row, except for that right in the middle, there was one day where I was like, I, I can't go to work today. And at the time when I was like on day 78, 79, really pushing towards that last sprint to kind of get this project over the finish line, I, want, I had a lot of regret especially in that moment of, oh my gosh, like my children are becoming teenagers. My wife never sees me. But what I didn't realize is that we were really about to give birth to not only this, this development, but also, which is, which is a beautiful development. It's, we've gained a bunch of real estate wealth with it because we kept two of the units, uh, three of the units, rather one of our office buildings, two of the townhomes. So that's a, that's a huge leap in personal wealth generation and clout, right? But what I didn't realize is that what it ended up being is that was the launch of our true construction firm in our, in our arm. So we had built everything off of this architecture firm 
we started a little real estate firm, but then all of a sudden it was like, oh, the thing to take from this, because we're probably not going to do any more real estate developments is, is wow. Now, now we have all this skill set, all of these subcontractors and other professionals that can do all of the plumbing, electrical, all that sort of stuff working with us. Let's, let's start the construction company. And what, what that's allowed Alex and I to do is it's, it's doubled our income, obviously doubled our staff, but then it's allowed us to be more selective with certain clients. So the only ones that we'll build for are, we're not so picky on the architecture side. We're very picky on the building side and the profit margins are much higher. So that has allowed both of us to buy more time to do more things that we want to do and enjoy the rest of our lives. For instance, like I will go home sometime next week and I will see the landscapers and, and the people mowing around my house. I don't have to do that because I could finally afford to, to pay for that. The people that helped us along the way, I think uh, obviously to kind of wrap this answer up is Alex was, was huge. Both of our wives were huge in that endeavor, but then our employees and, and we, we really strive to and have been striving to create a company culture that is sort of harking back to the idea, you know, back in the day where people would stay at companies, maybe for their whole lives. And what we're trying to do is show that if they're loyal to us and we're loyal to them, and there's this very give and take sort of feel where we try to be flexible. So like during COVID, when everything shut down and people went remote, we were already prepared for that. And we were already prepared for that because we were just trying to be flexible for our employees. I remember what it was like when I first moved to Colorado and was working for another firm before we started our firm, how difficult it was as a young parent to take time off, to just take your child to wellness checkup or something. So that's, that's what we're trying to establish over at F9 Productions, our architecture firm and, and our construction firm, F14, it is really honing in on that on that company culture that, that cares. So it's compassionate capitalism. Yeah. So you mentioned that you started in architecture, you did some development and you went to construction and you said you weren't going to do any more development. What was your rationale or reasoning behind that? Right. So the risk is not worth the reward at this point. And the biggest reason for that is basically there's the amount of onerous codes and regulations and then just the margins that everybody's squeezing each other out on, it doesn't make any sense to do it. So the easiest way to explain it besides kind of those details is if I'm doing a development, a real estate development right now in Colorado, it's going to take me at least three years from the time of buying the land to the point of finishing the whole project after going through all the approvals with the city, approvals with the bank, getting financed, going through all the weather delays during construction, selling them, hoping that the, at the time you're selling them to, the market hasn't crashed. We all remember 2008, that sort of thing. And it seems like we're heating up towards something like that maybe now versus if I'm a contractor and I'm also the architect. So I've already gotten paid for all the architecture work. Maybe that's occurred over six months. And then for instance, this particular owner, they say, we'd also like you to possibly build it. Well, if they're already financed, if everything's ready to go, all of a sudden, if it takes a year to do their building, you compare 18 months, you know, 25% profit versus three years and maybe no profit bankruptcy. I think that's what it called boils down to for us. Yeah. Risk management, I guess. Yeah. That makes mm -hmm. sense. So when you're 
I guess these two companies go hand in hand. Is there a difference? I mean, it looks like they're linked in terms of internal, like obviously they're not the same type of company. So how do you manage that, like in terms of your time and and sort of resources? Yeah, I would say I'm about 50% blue collar and 50% white collar at this point. And the blue collar is obviously when we do the contracting. And I, I personally, I, I feel like for me, that is the best balance because the blue collar really keeps me humble, closer to more gritty, down to earth kind of folks, whether it's our employees or our subcontractors, salt of the earth kind of folks, versus when I switch over to the, to the white collar side, we're dealing with multi-million dollar clients and homes, people that are very, have a very sophisticated tastes, either from one of the either West Coast or East Coast or Europe or beyond. So the companies are set up completely separate in terms of their structure. So the architecture firm is an S corporation. The construction company is a LLC. And you want to do that if anybody's listening to this and they're thinking about maybe multiplying and, and branching on and having several different companies. You always want to separate those with, as separate entities because if one domino falls, you don't want it to crash down the rest of the dominoes. So then the way it's set up with staffing-wise is we obviously have our in-house architects. There are right now about 10 of those, including Alex and I and ourselves. And then there are about five people that are out in the field doing construction work. Sometimes they're doing hands-on stuff. Sometimes they're acting as a, a foreman or women in, in the field. And so bank accounts are separate. The staff is separate. But there will be some mixing sometimes. And I think that's where our value really gets shown to owners and clients that we're doing the design plus the build for is that rather than there being the traditional, an architect and a contractor who are separate, because we've already designed and virtually tested everything in our uh, 3D virtual models and the architecture side of things, we've already worked out most of the kinks that are going to possibly happen in the field. You know, a beam conflicting with a piece of HVAC duct work or electrical or plumbing or any of that sort of thing. And we can really minimize the amount of bureaucracy and paperwork and just uh, tape that people have to go through because we can just, the architect and for the builder and the architect, we can just kind of talk to each other and solve those problems. Yeah. When I hear people splitting or creating more companies, I, I always think, are they just replicating the ownership structure and splitting them? Are they attracting new, new money and, and creating a different ownership structure? I mean, what's your mindset as you're sort of branching out? So the ownership structure is the same where Alex and I are 50, 50% partners for sure. But then beyond that, the staffing structure is vastly different because they're two vastly different companies in the sense of what they do, right? One is purely building things on paper, building things in the computer. And the other one is building things physically in, in the real world and making, making all of those dreams on paper a reality. So on the architecture side of things, we actually just finished a company manual, very first one, a formal one, where it laid out a, a hierarchy of how the staffing should work in our company. And it goes all the way from an entry-level designer, all the way up and up to uh, an owner or, or a principal like myself. And it, it, every title in the, on the architecture side of things has about a paragraph or two paragraphs, and it describes what your responsibilities would be at for these various tasks. On the construction side of things, basically we only have two levels. So on the architecture side, I think there's about seven levels of different positions in the construction side. So far there's only two. 
I mean, the construction company is only three years old. The architecture firm's 12 years old. So maybe it'll, you'll get a little bit more layers as we proceed and keep staff on board, hopefully, like I said, with the loyalty. So right now on the construction side, there's a, a foreman. So there's me, the general contractor, or Alex, the foreman. And then below that is just your general construction team member. And those people could be performing any, any kind of task, basically, that relates to general or finished carpentry in the firm. The profit margins, though, on, on both of these are, are much different. I would say, on average, the construction firm averages about 25% profit. The architecture firm swings between 10 and 20%. And there's really only so many things we can do with that. Fixed fee proposals have been pretty helpful to us, but it's such a saturated market on the architecture side. There's so many architects and so many architecture firms and so many unlicensed architects. They're basically called designers who can perform our work with legally, uh, you know, up to a certain threshold of like, you know, a designer can do a house. So can an architect. Well, that's a vastly different kind of sort of competition area. Contracting, though, there's definitely a shortage of good contractors. There's definitely a shortage of good builders. And therefore, you can charge a premium on your services. And because the pool is much bigger of potential owners, clients that you can go after with being a contractor and the contractor is much smaller, and it's the opposite for architecture. This has been an interesting dynamic for us to learn. Reading into that a bit, does that mean like in the next three or five years, the construction side is going to grow? and prioritize because of the higher margins? Yeah, it, literally this year. So my business partner, let's see, was it Wednesday? So it was a couple of days ago, just this week, he actually had a meeting with our insurance broker for the construction side of things. And they noticed that, so when you, have, when you have to renew your insurance every year for construction specifically, it's a lot of paperwork because they want to know what your expenses are, what kind of specific tasks you're doing. Well, when we put down what we were projecting for our expenses and revenue coming in. We're, like I said, we're only year three into the technically running this construction firm. We are projected to do four times as much gross revenue as our architecture firm with 75% less staff on our construction side. So yes, to answer your question now succinctly, we think that's where most of the growth is going to occur is on the construction side. So again, I, looking in hindsight, I'm, I'm really thankful that I was able to push through and I would encourage any other entrepreneurs, when you kind of feel your lowest, but you're so close to the finish line and maybe you're on your 79th day and you only got 80 days to go, you know, you've got a total of 80 to go, push through that because in hindsight, I guarantee you there's something you're going to see that was born out of that struggle. It's like a diamond, right? A diamond is was formerly coal with a lot of pressure a lot there's an analogy there that makes sense for entrepreneurship and building a business yeah yeah for sure i think with entrepreneurship what makes it difficult is the fact that you have to learn so many different aspects of it and you're only as good as your your weakest link like going forward where do you think those kind of insights, I wouldn't say weaknesses, but those areas you think you're going to have to tackle to get to the next level and to grow? Systems. So one of the, one of the best things that we, and lessons that we learned and then implemented on the architecture side of things that we are trying to figure out organically, just like we did on the architecture side, but for the construction side is 
what are the best systems that work for us? And so, for example, on the architecture side of things, it was one of the very first employees that we hired. He was an older gentleman. He was like 10 years older than us. It was a great hire because it was a, we made the mistake of thinking this guy, he doesn't need to be trained. And we should have trained him. We should have said, look, I understand, you know, the pieces of software. I understand you've been doing this sort of work 10 years longer than us, but our firm operates differently as everyone does. And so we should have ran, we should have had him go through our training course, software and design wise that that we have set up now internally. And so ever since then, we've done that with every architecture employee that's come through and it's, it's just paid dividends because we make the sacrifice of they're going to be unbillable for three days. Fine. But man, did they just rapidly make that up in the next week or two? It's already paid for. And then from there, they're at like a 90% billable rate, which is, which is really fantastic of where you want to be with a service-based business. So on the construction side of things, it's the same thing of, for instance, a, a little tiny improvement that we made over this last week. I text our, I was putting in for a big construction draw. So that's, you know, us saying, here's, here's what it's going to cost to continue the project and bills you got to pay and submitting it to the, to the bank for this owner. And as I was going through all the invoices, I set up a system with our foreman and I said, look, from now on, what we want to do is I want you to, when you go, when you go into the hardware store and let's say you're buying supplies for the building, plus you're buying supplies for just the construction firm, like safety glasses, that sort of thing. I need you to start separating out those invoices. So do two transactions. I realize it's going to take you a little bit more time up front, but it's going to save me time on the back end. Plus it's going to make it clear to the owner than the client that we're building for. So setting up the systems is the biggest hurdle that we have to overcome on the construction side of things. And we like to do it organically though, and sort of let the problems come out and then we solve them as we go rather than anticipating the problems and, and giving a solution off the bat that maybe was the, the wrong solution to begin with. Mm, yeah, no, for sure. Those are good lessons. Now, you've made so many uh, podcast episodes because you've been doing it since 2017. What's, what's been your favorite one? Which one really stands out or one you really shared something that, that was remarkable for you or a conversation? Well, I think my, there's, I would name two. Number one was probably having John McAfee on the show. He was just such an interesting person, interesting entrepreneur, and the guy was fearless. And the fact that we got him on the show, especially now that he's passed, I'm just really thankful for that. I at least got to have a a conversation with him. And I I would, would love it if your listeners just look up Inside the Firm podcast, John McAfee, and give it a listen. He's an interesting character, for sure. So there's two shows that we do every week. One is a Monday morning coffee show. And that's what I just talked about with John McAfee. But the other one is our Friday show. And that's where you are literally coming inside the firm. Alex and I are, it's kind of our executive meeting for the week, sort of inside look. And the, my favorite episode that is probably because it was, we did the episode when we were most vulnerable. And I think that's when a lot of just truth and humbleness came out. And I think that's important for people to see because a lot of people who put themselves out as sort of public figures like you and I are with our podcasts or public figures as business owners and people who maybe don't own businesses or don't have podcasts or, or stuff like that. I think they hold us up on a pedestal in a certain way that I think is unfair. In other words, that maybe we're like, everything's going well for us, right? Because we're sort of putting on this happy facade 
we, we have to look happy. We have to look successful. And you don't want to talk about the negative stuff. And so that episode is called, uh, it's Inside the Firm podcast, and it's Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls. And we recorded it two years ago. And when we recorded it, it was in towards the end of our development, this first real estate development that we did. One of the units flooded. And it was, it was one of the most devastating days of my life. I, I remember walking up to the unit, opening the door. It was like before the sun came up and it was all flooding and raining down. It was like, that's when you get these flashes of bankruptcy going through your head. That's when you get this, these flashes of failure going through your head. And so our episode for that week was called Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls because it was like this waterfall going down, the stairs and everything. And I think, I'm not sure there's any really good business lessons out of it, but just the fact that we showed that level of vulnerability, so it humanized people. And I think that's one of the things that I hope society, it's interesting, this digital thing that we're doing all the time, right? You and I are talking right now. Zoom has went through the roof since COVID hit. Social media is giant. And I think we're, as we're connected more and more and more, it seems like we're more disconnected at the same time, right? So like, what I think that it is that humanized somebody like me, and I, and I hope society can look at that and they can, we kind of get a reminder of everybody's still a person at the end of the day, even though they're, you know, this meme or this personality on air. And we can maybe start to have some more empathy coming back in society because you see the vulnerability happen. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think nobody, doesn't matter how good the business is running, is just sort of sailing along with no problems. There's always stuff that is happening. There's stuff that would not look good in a book, but yep. it's, you know, it works. And there's stuff that doesn't work. But yeah, I think that's what makes it fun. I think if everything was just just all neat and tidy, I think entrepreneurship would, wouldn't be that journey, wouldn't be that exploration. 100%. Yeah. Perfect. Now, Lance, is there anything I didn't ask you, but you still, you wanted to cover? No, I really appreciate uh, you giving me the time and the interview today. This has been great. You asked some questions that people have never asked me before. So I, I hope it was good content for you and your listeners. Well, Lance, uh, thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. I also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Pat's Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes, entrepreneurial tips, and more. See you over there. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.